everybody, welcome back to another edition of Bavarian Podcast Works. This is Chuck Smith, and I'm here to bring you the weekend warm-up podcast. Oh, man, what a week. Crazy, crazy stuff going on with Bayern Munich. Of course, you had the big draw with Borussia Dortmund, which, oh, man, how painful was that to watch go down? And then the bounce back against Victoria Plazenia in the Champions League, which was nice to see, but Bayern being Bayern this season, they could not finish it with authority and let Plazenia get back into the match, even though it was far out of reach for Plazenia, It was a little disappointing to watch Bayern uh, let an opponent back into the contest so late. But anyway, they came away with the win midweek in the Champions League. So that was good. But as always, we will dive right into this because there's so much, so much stuff to talk about every week on Bayern Munich. So let's start with the five things that we learned this week. And the first thing that we learned is Bayern Munich's form continues to befuddle me. I, you know, I looked at it like this. To me, the last week presented two games, Borussia Dortmund and Victoria Plazenia. Against Dortmund, I thought that Bayern was very strong in the first half. And I thought that until they started to get a bit nicked up, they, they were in firm control of the match. And at, literally at no point, did I think that Borussia Dortmund was going to come back? But as we did see, Bayern had a letdown. Borussia Dortmund gained that momentum and were able to pull out the last-minute draw, which to me, I'm still stunned that it, it broke down like that. It, it's a shame that it did because I felt like Bayern Munich had so many opportunities to really put Borussia Dortmund away, and they just couldn't do it. So very disappointing on that end. Midweek, Champions League, they play against Victoria Plazenia. And then what we saw was a very, very dominant start to the contest. We saw Bayern Munich come out, and they were just doing tremendous. They had great, great offensive energy. Their attacking was on point. Everyone was driving to the net. It just, to me, was really a super, super start to that match. And, of course... Once they got up by four goals, they fell apart a little bit, and that was a bit of a shame just because you wanted to see a complete effort. I think that's one of the things that we've been lacking in watching Bayern Munich in recent weeks is it just hasn't been the full 90 in most cases. What we've seen have been second-half meltdowns. We've seen stupid fouls in the second half. We've seen just poor play. We've seen a lack of urgency. We've seen it all. And I will tell you that from an observer standpoint, it has been frustrating because when I look at this team, I see so much, so much talent. And you see that Nagelsmann is a good coach. He is a good tactician. But I think at times both the talent and the coach have let each other down and let themselves down. Uh, Let's face it, Bayern Munich's roster has not lived up completely to its lofty billing. It's just been a little bit too inconsistent. And my biggest problem is that they just aren't finishing games. And as much as I want to see players rotate, as much as I want to see all of that talent being used game to game, it's going to make it very difficult for Julian Nagelsmann to use all of those players if they cannot finish, uh, both in the net and the game. So it's it's been really befuddling to me to see that. I I also, when I watch Bayern, I don't, it's so weird because for as frustrating as it can be sometimes at no point have I gotten to a, 
a place where I'm thinking that Bayern Munich is is just not going to be able to compete for a Champions League title or they're not going to win the league or they're not going to win the Pokal. No, I still think they're very strong contenders for all three of the competitions. I don't think that's the problem or the issue at all. What I think I do need to see, though, is a little more consistency, a little more urgency, and a lot more willingness to finish off what they've started. It has definitely been disappointing in that respect, and I hope that Nagelsmann can get through to the players, the players can draw more out of themselves, and that we can see this complete effort that's been missing. So the form, while it has not been at its best, has also not been bad. It's just so up and down, and it's been a bit maddening to me personally. And I think some of it has to do with the stability that's there, that there's been injuries, that we've had a lot of players going in and out. And without that stability and that steadiness, it has made it very, very difficult for this team to get in sync. And until that happens, until they're able to all get on the same page, and then that includes the coach, until they can all get together and make things work, it is going to be difficult. And I'm not sure when that will happen. I'm confident it will happen, but as far as the timetable goes, I just don't know. I thought it would have started to come together by now, but I'm also just not completely sure that the players on this roster are going to be able to pull off this 4 triple 2 on a long-term basis. And I've said it many times, I think the 4 triple 2 is probably the best alignment, the best formation for this particular roster. The problem is, I just don't know if the, if the formation itself is going to lend itself to being able to protect leads late in games, if it's going to be able to close out good teams when you need to. And and that's what we really need to see because to this point, Bayern's trademark victory for this season has been over an FC Barcelona side that's just not all that great, it looks like. Well, at least in the Champions League anyway. And that'll lead us right into the second thing that we learned this week. And that's it. It's that Robert Lewandowski and FC Barcelona are in danger of not making the knockout round. And how crazy is that? After all of this, after the transfer controversies, after everything that went down with Lewandowski, he might not make the knockout stage of the Champions League. I mean, it is astounding. When you consider all of the financial levers that were pulled by FC Barcelona, all of the money that was invested, all of the roster wrangling they did all summer to put together... This squad that everyone in Barcelona thought was going to be a contender only to to look so shabby in European competition so far. Now listen, I know that Barca has been very, very good in the league. And there's no disputing that. And there is something to be said for that. But when you get to the Champions League and you're playing against Bayern and Inter Milan and Victoria Plasenia, FC Barcelona has just not been that good. And it's funny, there will be a big segment of the Bayern fan base that will be kind of chuckling to itself that Lewandowski left. And, you know, especially if, if Barca does not advance, there will be a very, you know, there will be some bitter fans who definitely will laugh about it. I personally, I kind of feel bad for the guy. Now, it's hard to feel bad for anybody that's that rich, that famous, and is that... I don't know, well-known. It's just the guy has it all pretty much in his life. So when I say I feel bad, I feel bad because as a player, I do really like him. 
And I think that, you know, he had some goals that might not have aligned with Bayern Munich and where the direction of the club was headed. I do think there was a a pretty big issue between Lewandowski and Nagelsmann, and it's been downplayed a bit. And I don't think it gets enough talk because the more and more we hear about Lewandowski and Nagelsmann, there was definitely some friction about how he was being used, what his role was in the formation and all of that. And to me, it's very unfortunate that that might have played a role in why he left. But either way, he's in this spot now. He might not advance. And yeah, I know a lot of you guys will definitely get a laugh out of it. I'm not going to laugh about it, but, you know, I'll tell you this. The guy, it's just an egg on your face moment. If, if you go to Barcelona and you have to be the man to lead them and then you get knocked out in the group stage, Oh man, that is that would be rough for Lewandowski's reputation, but it is what it is at this point for Lewandowski. I mean, he's having a great season. I don't think that that squad was put together all that well, honestly. I mean, he Lewandowski has done his part. There's nothing more he really could be doing. It's just that the squad around him, he's got some inexperienced attackers and midfielders. He's got a defense that isn't maybe as good as they've been billed to be. And in the end, if the squad does not advance, it is a terrible look for Barcelona. And, and you're right, all of Europe will be laughing about it. If they don't. But for Lewandowski, I do feel a little bit bad. I do. Because as much as, you know, uh, I was one of the people up on a soapbox calling, a, calling him a jerk a couple of years ago, because he was, he does act like a jerk sometimes. I still think he's a good person. I don't think he's one of these bad guys that are out there. I just think he's, you know, he's got a huge ego. He was going to make some decisions that were going to be what he thought was best for him. You can't knock him for that. And he wanted to try and win a Ballon d'Or. And it's probably not going to happen, especially if you're playing in the Europa League. So poor Lewandowski. I don't, I, I, I'm a little bit disappointed for him, but I am not disappointed at all about FC Barcelona, I could really care less. And I, I will laugh at the club being uh, knocked down to the Europa League if that happens. But for Lewandowski, it's definitely an unfortunate set of circumstances for him. The third thing that I learned about this week is that there is still a lot of speculation about Julian Nagelsmann losing the locker room at Bayern Munich. And this week we saw both Lothar Mathaus and Marcus Babel both speak out about the possibility of Nagelsmann not quite being on the same page as his roster and not quite having the support of all of them. And the fact that he might be in a spot where he's losing the locker room, that's, it's concerning. And I do think like, you know, there's, there's the narrative out there and people are going to run with that. I get that part of it, but I also do think there is a little bit of substance to it. We've seen the player complaints, not just about, the coach's tactics, but also about the coach's communication skills, how he interacts with the players. We've seen a lot. It's not like there have been a couple of isolated events here. There's definitely something going on with Nagelsmann and his players. I don't think it's quite as bad as what we've read, and I don't think that he's quite in danger of losing the locker room yet. But I do think that Mathaus and Marcus Babel both have a point in that if it does get worse, if Byron can't sustain results, if they can't improve their standing and where they're at right now, 
<sighs> then there is a risk that things are going to devolve to a point where he could lose the locker room. And, and we saw this with Nico Kovac, who may or may not be a good coach. I personally think he's probably a decent coach. But he could not relate to those players on that particular Bayern team, and it killed him. It cost him his job. And, and you know, he started out on a bad foot with them, as we saw with hashtag Miami Knights. And then it went on for a year, and it got worse. And it was never going to improve. Now, I don't think Nagelsmann is at that point. I don't think we're there at that stage at all yet. But there is a risk there that if players remain unhappy with their roles or if they don't really buy in fully to the system that he's running, that you could see players start to jump off that train. And it doesn't take many. What it does take, though, are good players to do it. Players that carry weight in that locker room. You're talking about players like Thomas Muller, Joshua Kimmich, Leon Goretzka, uh, Kingsley Coman, perhaps, the players on the leadership council, Manuel Neuer. Now, of those players, I don't think any of them are quite yet ready to stop their support of Nagelsmann. Uh, you could maybe argue Muller because he's been around for so long and he's seen so much and the system is so vastly different than everything that's been successful at Bayern Munich in recent years that maybe he is seeing something that he doesn't like. For Coman, maybe you could, you could maybe see through his eyes that his position's not solidified. He's probably not going to be used in the best way possible to, to benefit him. That maybe he would potentially say something like that. I don't know. But in the end, I do think it would take one of that leadership group to really have a falling out with Nagelsmann for anything to happen. Now, you know, you could look at the midfield situation you could say, well, what about Goretzka? I mean, he, if Nagelsmann continues to ride Kimmich and Savitzer, then of course Goretzka could be met. And that's true. That could happen as well. But I don't think that that's going to be an issue. What I do think is that Nagelsmann will have some headaches with his midfield, but he could alleviate all of those headaches if he would just sit Kimmich a little more. You have three very good midfielders. You could easily find a way to make that work. Uh, regardless... I do think Nagelsmann still has a little rope to play with here. I don't think he's in danger of losing the locker room. I think that he still has a decent rapport, but not a great rapport with his players. And I think that the club is still firmly behind him, but also that the club is is aware that there are issues. And they're aware that the 4 triple two might not exactly be something that they can ride long-term in. And and they're probably going to want to know what Nagelsmann's plans are moving forward. Does he plan on trying to use this in the future? Does he see any type of change to a more traditional type system for Bayern Munich? Those are the kind of things that the executives are going to want to see or want to hear about. And of course, all of that will change with players that come in and come out. Uh, it, it will definitely be something to keep an eye on. But as, as of now, all of the talk about Nagelsmann losing the locker room, I think it's just a little bit premature. I don't think things have been that bad yet. I mean, Byron still only has one loss on the season. Granted, they have a handful of unfortunate draws. They haven't always looked their best. We've, we've seen some griping. Uh, players have been open about it, but I don't think it's bad yet. 
I have seen locker rooms way worse than what Bayern Munich is right now, so I wouldn't really worry about it too much. I think we're in a good position with Nagelsmann and the players both being aligned enough to to continue to work together, to continue to to build on what they have and to maybe get this season headed in the right direction on a consistent basis. Because what we've seen at times has been great. And then at other times it has been frustrating as hell. So uh, we'll keep an eye on it. But I think Nagelsmann is still, he's still good for right now. The fourth thing that we learned this week is that Chelsea is still considering making a run at Benjamin Pavard this summer. And I'm not surprised. Uh, I will be interested to see if, if this pursuit really starts to pick up steam exactly what position Chelsea would see Pavar playing. Uh, I personally think Pavar has been excellent as a right back this year. And I almost think it's, it's kind of funny because he has been so maligned for his play at right back that it's ironic that he's at a stage where now he might be one of the best right backs in Europe on a consistent basis. And now he's thinking about using or moving to center back and, and possibly moving to a different club just to be able to do that. So it is kind of funny, and I, I do understand his desire to play that position, but I also kind of wonder, what's the better situation for a player like Benjamin Pavar? Is it to be the starting right back at Bayern Munich, or is it to be a potential starting center back at Chelsea? Or would he even be a center back at Chelsea? Would they also just try and use him as a right back? There are a lot of variables here for Benjamin Pavar, and I'm I'm really interested to see how this plays out with how he gets recruited, essentially, over the coming months. For Benjamin Pavar, he's been very open about it. He wants to play center back, and it doesn't seem like any amount of success he's having at right back is going to influence his decision to play center back. And to me, it's unfortunate because I think he's been really, really good. And listen, I know there have been a ton of people that have been critical of him. I know, especially at BFW, we've had a lot of people critical of him. But I think he's been great. And I would love to see him continue on in this role because I think he has, after all of this time, really owned the role. I've never felt he was a terrible right back or a terrible defender. He's a different type of player than someone like Joshua Kimmich was when he played right back or Philip Lahm, or even he's a much different player than what Alfonso Davies does at left back. But what Pavar does is provide stability. He provides steadiness. And he is a threat offensively when he pushes up into that area. The best thing about Pavar is he's smart enough to recognize that Davies has a really advanced role, sometimes sucking him in centrally, which does mean that the right back has to be a little bit more conservative at times. So with that, I think that we're going to see, or I think that we have seen Pavar really evolve and really become the kind of player who has not just maybe sacrificed a bit of his own game, but has really improved to the point where he is now a consistent a consistent player who gets recognized for his efforts. If you look at the who scored scores or sofa score, Benjamin Pavar is always among the top right backs uh, in Europe, whether it comes to Bundesliga matches or 
in the Champions League. He has he has just been that good. And I think it's very telling that the club when we hear clubs like Chelsea or Manchester United, when we when we hear them being linked to Bavard means he has been that good and clubs are noticing. It's just what role do they want to see him in? Do they want to see him playing as the right back that we have all come to see this season who has been damn good? Or do they want him to play center back, a role that he really wants to play but might be a little bit more iffy with? I don't know. But what I can say about Benjamin Pavar is he, I think he's done everything that the club has wanted him to do. I think he has done everything that fans have wanted him to do this season. And he's going to be in a very, very interesting spot when we get to summer. Bayern Munich is going to be either inclined to sign him to an extension or sell him off. They do not want to go into a lame duck season with Benjamin Pavard because I don't know, I'm not a transfer market expert, but what I will tell you is I can't imagine that his value is any less than, what, $30 million, $35 million. He's that good, and I think that, you know, what he brings to the table and what his potential is, somebody is going to get a very good player if they really pursue him and he decides that he wants to move. Selfishly, I don't want him to go to Chelsea just because I think that no matter what they have, whether it's a change in ownership or (laughs) changes in play, I just think they're a mess, and I don't think they're headed in the right direction anyway. So for me, I, I... I would prefer to see him obviously stay with Bayern Munich, but if he's going to go somewhere, Chelsea would not be the place that I would want him to go. That said, Bayern Munich is going to be in a very, very difficult position in the summer. They made the investment into Nusar Mizraoui. He has shown that he's a pretty capable player, but I don't see him at the level of Benjamin Pavard just yet. I think he's definitely more offensive-minded, how does that work when you have Davies already essentially playing more offense than defense these days? I don't know, because I don't think you can get away with just having two defenders back at times. I don't think having the two center backs facing counterattack after counterattack is really the best option, to be honest. Uh, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm a little worried about what the state of the defense would look like if Benjamin Pavar moves on and Nusar Mizrahi became the starting right back. And it has, it's not really an indictment of Mizrahi's talent. It's obviously there, but I don't think he is anywhere near the defender that Pavar is, and I don't think he's got quite the mindset to really sacrifice his game like Benjamin Pavar has so that Alfonso Davis can function like he does. And at this point, does anybody think that Nagelsmann or any other coach that could come into Bayern Munich would, would really put... put you know, a lockdown on Davies and try and make him just strictly a defender? No, I don't think that's happening. So while Mizrahi was a, a really a heralded signing over last summer, I'm not sure he's a great fit for what Bayern Munich wants to do or needs to do with this particular roster. So whatever happens with Pavar, Mizrahi is definitely going to be at the heart of those replacement plans. And, and to me, it's definitely a bit of a red flag, or at least uh, it's not as solidified as I think many people thought it would be, or what many people thought Ms. Rally would be like. I just don't see having two really heavily offensive-minded wing backs or, or outside backs 
is going to be the way to go for Bayern Munich. I just think it'll create way too many issues. And finally, the fifth and final thing that we learned this week is that it sure seems like Bayern Munich is going to invest in a number nine next summer. And this has been kind of one of the things that I think most people have thought about over the course of this season. You lose Robert Lewandowski. You decide to roll out the four triple two. And you're going essentially strikerless, right? I mean, you're, you're playing at any one time. Thomas Muller and three wings is your, the top four in your formation. And that's just how it's going to be. You have some intriguing options in-house. You have Matisse Tell, who is still very young. We still don't know what he's going to be. All that we do know is he's got potential, and potential does not get you anything. Nothing is guaranteed with potential, and as good as he may look at times, a club like Bayern doesn't have the luxury to gamble like that. So... It was one of the reasons why I was puzzled with the move in the summer, because they spent a lot of money to get Tell. It's not to say that he's not worth it or he won't be worth it or whatever, but with Bayern, you need a short thing. And, and as we've seen with the, the recent rumors, uh, I mean, they're looking at Harry Kane, right? Like, that's not going to be cheap. We have saw the story this week. It could be as much as nine figures. So why would you go out and get Tell this summer for 38 or whatever it costs you? And then turn around and have to spend 100 mil on Kane this summer, it, 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 or in the summer of 2023. I, I, I don't I don't know. <laughs> I'm a little puzzled by it. I get why the the acquisition of of Tell happened, but if ultimately this is all going to lead to Byron having to buck up and spend nine figures on Harry Kane next summer, I, I do start to question some of the long range planning. And listen, I, for as good as Brazo has been. And how he handled that window, I'm not sure what they were thinking setting themselves up this way without having a nine and trying to do this positionless offense and this positionless attack where everyone's consistently interchanging. Players don't really have a spot in the front four. They're moving all over. It's working to a point, but I don't know if it's sustainable for the long term. And if Byron has to go out and get that, that big name established number nine next summer, do they change back to a 4-2-3-1? Do they move to a 4-3-3? There are so many options. There are so many possibilities. And whatever happens, as we saw with Ryan Gravenberg and his situation in the midfield, I'm sure Tell has a, a fuse he's working with in terms of what he wants to see in terms of playing time. At 17, this is a year where at a club like Bayern Munich, he should absolutely be learning. You should absolutely just be getting the experience of being in that environment every day. So you chalk that one up. I would think next year he would want a little more playing time. The demands come up. The following season, his third year, I would think he would want to be a starter, which I guess would put him at 19, 20 years old at that point. I don't see that happening unless unless something drastic happens, especially if Byron goes out and gets a big name number nine next summer. And I'm not sure if Kane is feasible. I'm just using him as the example. Ultimately, I think Harry Kane is going to stay at Tottenham. I just think England is in his blood, obviously, and I don't think he wants to leave. Uh, But I do think that Bayern Munich, if they do not win the Champions League, if they somehow scuffle away in the Bundesliga or the the DFB Pokal and don't win either of those, 
there will be massive pressure on Bayern to go do something and to get back to normal in terms of, of their formation. And it'll be difficult. It'll be difficult for Nagelsmann. It will be difficult for Brazo. It will be difficult for some of the players on the roster because one of the main things I worried about when this roster was put together last season was I just felt like you have so many of the same type of players. I wasn't sure how you, one, keep them all happy, two, how you use them effectively. Right now what we've seen is we've had injuries and suspensions that have helped keep things fresh among that attacking group. Uh, We've had COVID. We've had everything. Uh, Anything that could have happened has happened. So it's worked out in terms of keeping people healthy as of now. But how long is is that going to last? Do you want to keep counting on injuries and and COVID cases and suspensions to keep everybody happy? I, I don't think so. I don't think anybody wants to do that. So I think that as we get closer and closer to the time where the executives are going to have to plan something, where they're going to have to put together a vision for the 2023-2024 season, I think you're going to have to, to start to look at who are some of those number nine possibilities that you want, who can you get, how much will they cost, and for me, I don't even know. Like, I don't think Kane's going to happen. But if he shoots Bayern down, where do they go from there? I mean, my pipe dream is and always has been Erling Haaland, but that that's not happening anytime soon if it happens at all. I mean, he's pretty solidified with Manchester City at this point. When his buyout does come up, it really looks like, barring an acquisition of Kylian Mbappe, that Real Madrid is going to go hard at Holland. So it is going to be quite the interesting summer. And it will have a huge, huge effect on things. Like, we won't, you know, we will have all of these stories going across BFW, I'm sure, all these links to strikers. But in the background, I'll be thinking about what what the hell is Matisse Tell thinking? What are his plans? What does he think about all this? Because to me, he is a kid that, that's going to, to want to play soon enough. Like I said, I think he's given it this year. I think he'll want more PT next year. And I think that third year, he's expecting to be a starter. And I, I don't know if that can or will happen. I'm just really operating under the assumption here that Bayern is is going to go out next summer, that summer of 2023, and try and get a top-notch striker. But man, it is not going to be easy and is surely not going to be cheap. So that's what we got for the footballing portion of this program. We can quickly touch on the entertainment rundown, which will focus really on House of the Dragon this week. And I'll keep this brief uh, because I know you guys all have so much going on. But uh, House of the Dragon, I thought, finally, finally kicked off and was good from start to finish. I thought everything was good. It was well thought out. The pacing was fine. It was self-contained. It, I thought it was great. It was the best episode by far, of course, you know, spoilers are ahead here, but we did see how the conflict is starting to evolve. We saw just a dynamic scene in the throne room. We saw the death of King Viserys, and we saw Viserys on his deathbed making the statement to Queen Alicent that he, 
that Aegon would be the one who would be the prince that was promised. And of course, what we all know as Game of Thrones viewers, that the Aegon that is the son of Viserys and Alicent is not the Aegon who is eventually the prince who was promised. And that Aegon, of course, was Jon Snow. But as far as the episode goes, I thought it was great. Um, I thought... <laughs> Prince Damon's decapitation in the throne room and how quickly he wielded that sword was just awesome. The thing that I really want to see moving forward is what kind of conflict Prince Damon and uh, <laughs> uh, what is I am blanking on the other Amond. I want to see what conflict Prince Damon and Prince Amond have in the future because. It sure does seem like that Prince Aemond, who, who was kind of, uh, I would say, like the apathetic of the boys when they were shown as as being younger, one that was maybe not as confident, one that was maybe not as skilled a fighter, is now a complete badass. It does seem like at some point those two are going to butt heads because they seem like two alphas that will never be able to get along. Of course, with King Viserys dying... We're now going to be pushed into really this Dance of the Dragons kind of battle uh, that should really be kind of, I will say, captivating to watch play out. Because, you know, of course we're going to get a lot of fighting. Of course we're going to get a lot of political uh, posturing. But I think that the acting has been so good. I think that despite the fact this is not as rich a storyline as Game of Thrones and that the characters are not developed as much and the fact that it's really just not as dense a story. I was really struggling with that in the beginning, but I think it's now starting to work its way out. I think it's starting to really become its own show. And it's starting to get out of the shadow of Game of Thrones a little bit. And while it's in the same world, it's in the same universe, it's going to be its own show. It's going to do its own thing. And I think that that's a good thing. And maybe it was a little foolish for me to expect the same richness that we saw with Game of Thrones and how every storyline was so intricate and well thought out and planned. We weren't seeing that at the beginning of House of the Dragon. We were seeing a lot of rush storylines and the terrible pacing issues. But now I'm, I'm buying in, and as much as I didn't want to, I'm probably all in at this point. Um so yeah, yeah, I thought it was great. I'm looking forward to watching it play out. The interesting thing I saw this week, and I don't know if it's true or not, is I think George R.R. R. Martin said that it would take four seasons of 10 episodes for this to play out properly and, and be done right. So I'm interested to see what HBO's plans are in terms of either finishing this story the proper way and giving it its due, or if it ends up kind of rushing things again and having a terrible finish to what was a strong storyline. And the last entertainment thing I will hit, and I won't spend any, really any time on this, but if you are a Walking Dead watcher, how terrible has that, this final half of the final season been? To me, it has just been awful. I, I, I like, I'm lost in the storyline. None of it's interesting. The characters, the only characters I care about are really cared to see this season they're not doing anything it's just all same the same recycled type things that we've seen a million times over and it's just not good anymore I, I, I mean I've said that for a while now 
uh, I will be happy when it's finally put out of its misery and we don't have to, you know, I don't, I don't have to feel obligated to watch anymore because I'm just extremely disappointed with, with how it's played out. So that's all about that. Uh, just want to say thank you all again for listening. I have a blast talking to you every week. Uh, I am looking forward to the match this weekend against SC Freiburg. I think it will be a great one. I want you guys to enjoy that. I want you to have a couple of beers on me as you watch it, even if it is a Sunday. Uh, you know, hey, BFW is not Chick-fil-A. We're open on Sundays. We'll have all of your coverage, and I can almost guarantee you there'll be a few of us drinking beers during that time as well. Uh, you can always get me at the Barrel Blog. You can get the site at Bavarian FB Works. You can get Tom, my guy Tom Adams, who does an awesome job with our Twitter account, at TommyAdams71. You can get I Need No Name, the mysterious one, at BFWINNN. You can always get all of our other podcasters and bloggers on the site. If you haven't checked out Samarin's preview for SC Freiburg, you absolutely have to make sure you do that. She does a great job with the previews, and that will get you all hyped, ready, and informed for the game. So please check that out. Of course, we will have the flagship show dropping on Sunday, and there'll probably be a little bit of a preview in that as well for FC Barcelona. So there's a lot coming at you. We'll, of course, have all of the great coverage of the game and all of the latest and greatest Bayern Munich news. So thanks again for listening. We will see you next time.